As a heads up, before we start this episode, I want to give a trigger warning. This show covers the topics of sexual assault and rape as it pertains to the movies we are discussing, which may be upsetting to some listeners. This is ContraZoom, where we go back and forth about film. I'm Dakota Arsenault. And I'm Rachel Ho. Today's episode is another installment of Make Remake. It's where we take a movie and its remake and compare the two. Not to see which one is necessarily better or worse, but to see how two movies can tell the same story both similarly and differently. In the past, we've paired such films as The Tragedy of Macbeth, Dune, The Invisible Man, and more. On today's show, we are considering the 1961 J. Lee Thompson film Cape Fear with the 1991 Martin Scorsese film of the same name. Normally, we try to pick new releases when possible to keep the show current, but we decided to dip into the archives of film a bit because it's the 60th anniversary of the original version of this film. And what better way to celebrate the milestone than to dedicate a whole episode to this movie? If you have not seen at least one version of this movie, be warned there will be plenty of spoiler talk in this episode. Now, both films are adaptations of a 1957 novel called The Executioners, written by John D. MacDonald. The original movie was more faithful to the novel, with the key similarity being that Sam Bowden, played by Gregory Peck, originally witnessed the crime that Max Cady, performed by Robert Mitchum, committed and testified against him. Whereas in the remake, Sam became Max's appointed public defender and buried evidence to ensure his own client would get convicted. The original version of the film came out towards the end of the Hayes Code era in Hollywood, where morality and obscenity were policed. And as such, it meant that director J. Lee Thompson had to find clever ways to film and discuss the often brutal plot. Instead of showing the crimes that Katie commits, he instead talks about what he did or how he would do things. We see the aftermath of him beating a woman. The ending also shows Bowden also getting proper justice. The original movie also co-stars Polly Bergen as Peggy, Sam's wife, and Laurie Martin as the Bowden's teenage daughter, Nancy. Martin Balsam also has a large part as the police chief who wants to help Sam, but is hamstrung by what he can do. The remake came at a time which what could be depicted on screen was much more looser. Max Cady, played by Robert De Niro, is shown violently assaulting a woman and biting out a chunk of her cheek. We also get a Stockholm Syndrome-like attraction between Max Cady and Sam's 15-year-old daughter, who likes the attention Max gives her not realizing she's being manipulated. The biggest difference might be the Bowden family isn't clean-cut. With the original, you literally have the actor who played Atticus Finch as the patriarch, whereas here you have someone more akin to Saul Goodman. In the film, Nick Nolte plays the lawyer Sam Bowden, with Jessica Lange playing his wife and Juliette Lewis as their daughter. The remake also includes cameos from Peck, Mitchum, and Balsam, albeit playing different roles here. In case you haven't seen either Cape Fear movie, both movies revolve around lawyer Sam Bowden, who is instrumental in getting a violent criminal, Max Cady, sent to jail. When Cady gets released, he has a singular goal of terrorizing the Bowden family and enacting revenge that would be fitting of a long prison term. Cady's plan involves following the law as strictly as possible to not have his plan ruined as he is increasingly and legally begins to torment the family by way of stalking and committing crimes that are untraceable back to him. Despite knowing what the burden of proof would be to arrest and convict Katie, 
Bowden increasingly grows desperate and tries to take matters into his own hands, since the police are ineffective and unable to stop a man who hasn't quite broken the law yet. Eventually, everything comes to a head when Sam Bowden tricks Max Cady into thinking he has left his wife and teenage daughter alone on their houseboat at Cape Fear, an aptly named River, before surprising him and having a final confrontation. Rachel, I originally started this project as a way to watch two movies I'd never seen before, but lately we've been going... We've been doing make remakes where one of us had seen one or both of the films that are being discussed. Going back to brand new movies that we hadn't seen, how did the Bode and Katie stories work for you? The story in general, I think it's actually it's pretty fascinating. I like the idea. Um, I like the idea of you know the kind of uh, the. You're going to get into this later. I'm going to steal one of your points, but I like the <laughs> idea of like the con it's like the analysis of the justice system, you know? Mm-hmm. And like, and that is, it is very interesting. And it is very, um, uh, focal to the entire film. Um, and so I, I think it's, it's even more interesting to me that this, the original came out in 19, the sixties when, even though, you know, we kind of look at the sixties as being the flower power time and the hippies, we're talking still quite early in the decade. And, we're still fairly, like you mentioned, you know, with Hayes Code, it, we're still kind of in that buttoned up era. And you might not necessarily want to talk about these types of issues, right? Like you don't want to talk about that. So I think it's interesting that it's it's a it's a story from quite a while ago. I like that even though I wasn't the biggest fan of the Scorsese version, I like that there was kind of an updated version of it 30 years later. And I would actually argue that I think this is one of those movies that as much as I'm not a massive fan of reboots and remakes and everything, this would be an interesting story to revisit right now and seeing how, you know, the, the society that we're living in now, the justice system that we're living in now, the issues that are prevalent, you know, um, especially when it comes to men and women and sexual violence. I think it would be fascinating to do another um, film, another version of this today. Yeah. And I think one thing, if they did remake it, the inclusion of technology because mm-hmm, yeah. a big a big part of these movies is you know while the the remake kind of has there's there's someone that has a car phone in one of the scenes <laughs> but it's still before the use of widespread cell phones and internet of course and so this idea of Max Cady following the laws as strictly as possible of he understands that he can't actually go on someone's property he has to maintain a certain distance he can't make verbal mm-hmm. threat but he can do other things to intimidate someone and it's one of those things where like when when Sam is trying to recount well what's he done to you oh and, and he came onto your property to t- kill your dog he's like well no he didn't actually and I didn't really see him and 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 so once they start trying to explain what happened it, it almost feels a bit like he's explaining being gaslit because he's like, mm-hmm. I, I know he's out there, he's stalking me. And he's like, okay, but what's he actually doing? Well, you know, he bought my family ice cream. Well, that's <laughs> not a crime. <laughs> so it'd be very interesting to sort of see how that would translate to the technology era that we are in today, where they, you know, you know, in, in the first two, they're like, well, let's look at his bank account balance. Now it'd be like, well, let's let's look at his, his cell phone logs. What, what, who's he calling? Who's he talking to? What, what websites is he going to? Things like that. Yeah, I think it'd be fascinating. And then also like a lot of, you can say this for any movie set in like a contemporary movie that's a horror movie or an action movie. It's like, we all have our cell phones on us now. And so that Mm -hmm. that element of, oh my God, like, how are you going to call somebody? Like in the 60s, sure, there was probably one house phone and you had to dial through to 
an op like a manual operator yeah. who would kind of like do the the pluggy things which i always think is neat um and then but even in in the early 90s like it's still house phones right like nobody will have a phone physically on their body at all times which we would today so you look at the character specifically of the daughter i'm thinking of um like that character i think she would play very differently today and like i mean we'll get into it but like the aspect of what you mentioned of her with the stockholm syndrome and like her being kind of infatuated that to me would play so 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 differently today um not necessarily for better or for worse like or it would just be different and i and and we would all perceive it in a very different way so i don't know it would be i i don't think there's any i've never heard, i haven't heard of anything of them wanting to redo this but this is one of those movies i think it's it's like kind of like a star is born like keep revisiting mm. it over the decades because it the context of how we live is going to change the story greatly even though the the story itself like the core of it will stay the same yeah and i think also the role of Max Cady is such a juicy part. Like it's funny, mm-hmm. I was reading the the IMDb trivia of the first one, and uh, Gregory Peck was actually a, <laughs> a producer on on that one, and he sort of lobbied for Robert Mitchum to play the part. Yeah, and and Mitchum knew he was out acting Peck, and Peck got pissed off at that. And you watch the movie, you're like, yeah, Mitchum was out acting him. He had the way better part, a way more juicy yeah. part to deal with. And then it's the same thing with the remake. Is like. They try to tack on so much stuff for Nick Nolte to do, but still, yeah. it's Robert De Niro who like comes through. Obviously, maybe it's a, a bit too crazy, and maybe we could talk about that a little bit later. But either way, like that's a part where you know it's it's almost akin to like playing the Joker now, where it's just like, yeah, I, I want that's that I was really juicy of. bad guy part. Yeah, I mean, but like the 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 straight guy is never the more interesting role, right? But no. we need that. You do need it, and and I mean, we'll, we'll like we keep saying we'll get into it but it's like i think i prefer gregory peck's version of it because i think it allows um robert mitchum's version of max katie to kind of breathe a little bit more whereas mm-hmm. nick nolte's version feels a little almost kind of distracting like it it just feels like a lot i mean that whole movie it felt like a lot in general and i yeah whatever <laughs> i i found it very comedic at some points which i don't think it was meant to be um but yeah, I, I think like it's, I love that quote too. I saw what you're talking about on the IMDb of Peck basically saying like, you know, he kept talking about Robert Mitchum kept saying like, oh, he's acting. Yeah. It was like, yeah, Gregory Peck knew it was a better role. Yeah. Like he knew it was. And he purposely sought out Robert Mitchum for, um, for it because he thought, oh, this guy will do something great with it. And I mean, I can't imagine Gregory Peck in a role like that though, because he's, I don't know. He's he's Gregory Peck. He can't be in a, he can't be Max Katie. Yeah. He he's Atticus Finch. <laughs> yeah, like he's just such a very like dapper gentleman, like very straight laced and kind of thing. But I love him for that. And like and yeah. I mean, I'm not saying actors need to spit st- stick to specific things. It would just kind of break my heart a little bit to see him as Max Katie. Yeah, yeah. Now, speaking of the original movie, it it almost has like this weird out of time feel to it because the movie came out in 1962, but it feels like it's a much older movie. The fact that mm-hmm. it's still in black and white, despite the fact that by the early sixties, most films were in color by that point. And it, it really sort of felt like a fifties noir, almost like a, a late forties, yeah. fifties noir. And, and it just had this weird timeless quality to it where even when it came out, it felt like it was a not dated, but it was it was it was a period piece movie. Did you feel that way about it? Absolutely. When the title when the movie first started playing and the Universal 
It's universal, right? Yeah, I think it's yeah, yeah. It was the ori- the really old school logo. Yeah, and I saw it and I thought. Wait, hold on. And it was in black and white. And I actually thought for a second, oh, crap, did I click? Like, did I pick the wrong movie to watch? Because I wasn't expecting that. Because like you said, in the early 60s, we're starting to see the maybe it's because it's that transition period, though, because I think Mm. at that time, a lot of studios were deciding like, it was a very specific choice to go, we're going to go with the old school version of making a movie versus, oh, we're going to do something a little bit more, quote unquote, futuristic um, for the time. And I, I kind of like that they kept it that way because I, I feel like, like you said, it lends a very timeless quality to it. And I think that that has a lot to do with, uh, suppo- I, I suppose, like the rose-tinted glasses that we look at the golden era in a little bit. And that this movie falls, aesthetically speaking, right into that, like with, you know, the noir elements and just the the beautiful shades, like the light and the dark and, and that that you get with black and white film. Um, but I loved it. I, I liked that it had that quality. And I know that um, the director, he was really influenced um, by Alfred Hitchcock. So it kind of feels very appropriate that mm-hmm. the movie is in black and white and has that 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 quality to it. Whereas on the flip side, the, the Scorsese version also feels <laughs> like it's out of place, but it feels like it should have been made uh, in the 80s. It's, it's like yeah. if... Um, the, they made the Miami Vice. So it, it's like mm-hmm. if Miami Vice, like they actually, the people that made this, that made Cape Fear did all the cocaine that they <laughs> seize on Miami Vice and then decided to make a movie because that's what this movie felt like. It felt like it was like oh. 80s maximalist, like every single scene had a Dutch angle or like yeah. a, a snap zoom or whatever that's called, a punch zoom. I, I don't know. And just like, everyone is overacting to shit. There's all these like super hard edits where like literally like a scream is happening. It cuts to something else and like (laughs) it's just craziness going on. And like the fashion, I have no idea what was going on with a lot of the choices Scorsese was making in this movie. I'd say like even just straight, like I talked about the universal logo at the beginning of the 62 version. It was like even the opening credits for the 91, the font choice that they used it's like that is the most stereotypical when I see it, I think of a Steven Seagal movie from the eighties. Like (laughs) it just really reminds me of that. And I have to say, like, I'm shocked that this is a a Martin Scorsese movie. Like it doesn't feel like a movie of his because it feels so much. It just, it never lets up. It's incredibly high octane and not necessarily the great in a, in a great way. And it doesn't, cause like Scorsese, I always look at him as more of a director that, works best in like quiet moments and like mm. really kind of subtle mm-hmm. subtlety <laughs> not always but like you know i i find like that's something i kind of relate to him whereas this is is the complete opposite of that like i i it really does surprise me that this is a scorsese movie but i think this came right after goodfellas if i'm not mistaken i think that this is the movie he did after goodfellas um which isn't particularly subtle in its own way but you know what i mean like it's it's uh yeah i think this is the first movie he does after goodfellas so i i wonder if you know he just kind of wanted to do a bit of a pivot and do like a more thrillery type movie and move away from that kind of gangster genre a little bit which speaking of goodfellas rest in peace to ray liotta who just passed yeah, away yeah yeah 67 so young i know so so know. young but oh, somebody's out there What's your connection with this fella? I was his lawyer. 
boat just shafted him somehow, right? And what was he in prison for? No, really. What the, What did you do? Have you been following me? Well, it's a small town. Everywhere you turn, I guess we're gonna run into each other. <laughs> Dad, you should have just punched him out. Yeah, you know how to fight, Dirty. You do that for a living. This guy, uh, he threatened you? He's clever. So that the law can't touch him. Come out, come out, wherever you are. But we should probably start getting into the the meat of our discussion, which is going over some similarities and differences. Uh, we're going to start off with some things that were done similarly between the two films. And this was something that you, you had briefly mentioned earlier uh, and sort of the the overall influence of Alfred Hitchcock on these films. In the original 1962 film, Bernard Herrmann wrote the score. In the 1991 version, Elmer Bernstein re-recorded Herrmann's original score for the film. Elmer Bernstein also used unused portions of Herman's score for Torn Curtain, a film directed by Alfred Hitchcock. Bernard Herman is most well-known for scoring eight of Hitchcock's movies, including Vertigo, Psycho, and North by Northwest, and more. Martin Scorsese had Saul Bass design the title credit sequence for his Cape Fear, but Bass is also known for for doing opening credit sequences for such movies like Psycho, Vertigo, and North by Northwest. All this to round out is that Cape Fear has the look feel an inspiration of Alfred Hitchcock's darkest movies. And I would say that the Scorsese one feels a bit like a Brian De Palma movie, which is mm-hmm. also a Alfred Hitchcock reference. I sort of felt this like the Hitchcock vibe all over. You're you're talking about it, the original one right when it started, it really had that Alfred Hitchcock yeah. feel to it. And I could totally see him making this movie right around the same era that he did Psycho too. Definitely. And it, it's, it's such an interesting thing talking about the score because I think Hitchcock, he used score really beautifully and in, in, in a way that um, like the psycho, like the strings on psycho, like that became kind of synonymous across horror films in general. Like he, he kind of redefined how to use score um, in, in that genre. But I, the thing I find when I, when I, was like looking up stuff um, for this episode is like, I was actually a bit surprised to hear that there was so much overlap in the score because I really hated the score in 1991's version. I just (laughs) thought it was so much. And it was just, it was everything that's like the excess of the eighties. Like what you were saying about the maximalist kind of eighties vibe that this movie gives off. But in the 62 version, it's like, I really liked the score. I thought that it was used really, lo- like, really beautifully and just mm-hmm. pairing with the moment, pairing with the characters, um, with the aesthetic of the movie overall. I will say for the 1991 version that the score does, uh, it does match the aesthetic. And I mm-hmm. don't necessarily mean that in a positive way, but like, it does match it. So that at least there's that. Um, but I found it really fascinating that like the, the score has so much overlap. There, there are so many similarities in terms of the development of the of the music, and yet I really couldn't stand one, but I really loved the other. It's I almost feel like the the, the Max Cady motif that is basically the most famous, you know, uh, part of the score. And if anyone has seen the Simpsons episode where they parody Cape Fear, they use the same music there as well. <laughs> I, I think the sort of difference is in the original one it's used not as often and it almost feels like it's played at a quieter level in the movie. Mm-hmm. Whereas yes, in the Scorsese one, it's like every time Max Katie is on screen, we get this motif and just like blaring like, okay. and so it's like so over the top and in your face. And then, so that's what they're doing in the Simpsons parody is like, every time you see sideshow Bob, you get this like motif playing and it's just so over the top and ridiculous. And so I wonder if, We've basically been 
conditioned as growing up on the Simpsons of watching that. So <laughs> I've seen that episode so many times that that kind of gave me preconceived notions of when I was watching the original, just yeah. thinking it was ridiculous. I mean, it's, it's so like I mentioned it to you before. It's like, I never watched Cape fear before. Um, I, I've seen the Simpsons. It, and that's happened to me with a few movies actually, where it's like, I saw the Simpsons episode first and then I saw the movie later. And in my head, part of me, not in this situation, uh, but part of me was like, they're just copying the Simpsons here. Like I, and and I don't realize that actually it's the other way around. Like I remember there, there's the episode, the great baseball episode for the Simpsons, oh, yeah. um, which is one of my favorites. And I didn't realize it was like a, a the natural, like a <laughs> satirizing the natural. And then I saw the natural and I was just like, they're just ripping Homer off here. And I'm like, Oh no, it's clearly it's the other way around. But yeah. Yeah. I, I love like me, me. I think there is something to, to be said for what you're, you're raising here. Cause I think when an entire generation is brought up on just a bunch of Simpsons stuff and that becomes so ingrained in the way that we um, like sub very subconsciously too, cause we don't really realize it and like they're making fun of it. And so then when we go to watch the actual movie, it still feels like a satire. It still feels like a parody. Like the whole film feels like a parody in many ways. Um, and again, it's, it is that eighties thing, right? Like it, it was just the over the top eighties style of making film and especially action movies, especially thrillers. Uh, cause they felt the need to just kind of whack everyone over the head. Cause maybe it was cause everyone was like on Coke in the eighties. <laughs> and so maybe it was like, they just needed to really cut through all the drugs. Yeah, yeah, uh, but it, it's just so it's just so fascinating seeing all the different connections to, to Alfred Hitchcock from these two movies. Yeah. Uh, even if I feel like the original one is maybe even too grimy for Hitchcock, because Hitchcock was very much of the um, don't show, don't tell, just let all of the suspense sort of be in your head. Mm-hmm. And and even in the original, I feel like they they didn't show a lot, but they definitely told a lot. Like there there's this one really brutal scene um, of of Max and Sam having the their drink together, and he like is telling the story about how he blackmailed his ex wife and things like that. And like that's pretty pretty brutal stuff. And mm-hmm. I I cannot think of anything even remotely close that would appear in a Hitchcock movie. And it's the way I think it's the how casual they are too. Like how casual Max is talking about it, and he yeah. doesn't say it with any. Um, it's odd. He's like he doesn't say it with any menace, which I know sounds no. kind of weird to say, but like he just says That's it. Like scary just part, like, though. yeah, like just like oh, it's just you know, this is something that happened in my life, and uh, you know, and, and it's like yeah, that, that's I I was blackmailing this, not yeah, but it's you're right. It's it takes kind of the darkest aspects of Hitchcock and takes it to a, quite an extreme. And I mean, I know that this movie, because of the time period it came out in, um, it got cut down here and there, like some scenes got removed and things like that. So I, I do find it interesting that like what even got left in is still fairly dark and, and um, like perverse and provocative, especially for the era. But even today, like hearing that kind of stuff, it's still freaky. Like it doesn't, mm-hmm. it's not necessarily an era thing. I think maybe we're just a bit more numb to it now because we see so many of these movies and see so many headlines and all that kind of stuff. But um, yeah, it's incredibly dark. And I don't know, would like would Hitchcock even go this far? I mean, he went pretty far too, though, didn't he? Yeah. Yeah, uh, for different things. Uh, all right. Yeah. The, the next point that I've got here is a condemnation on the justice and policing systems 
Now, these movies aren't Minority Report, where police have a machine that lets them know if someone is going to commit a crime in the future. Here, the police can't arrest Max Cady for staring menacingly at a family having ice cream. They try to find reasons to shake him down, like for vagrancy and not having enough money, which are sketchy tactics that indict policing as a whole. But other than getting a restraining order, there isn't anything legally that Sam Bowden can do to protect his family. There's also a plot line in both films about a woman who gets raped and brutally assaulted and refuses to submit a police report or agree to testify if Max was charged. Women for too long have known that reporting sexual assaults are painful, exhausting, and rarely results in justice. The women in Cape Fear know that because they drank, because they willingly went home with Max Cady, and because they dressed up, they wouldn't be believed and would have to go through a long and painful recount of what happened to them in graphic detail many times. Due to the way the justice system is not on their side, it made sense for the women not to cooperate, something that Max knew. The whole time watching this, I, I feel like the, the, the main theme of this movie was a, a condemnation of, of you know, policing as a whole. You know, we often hear about how effectual, ineffectual police are if things are like, if you are robbed, if your house gets broken into, or things like that, where essentially uh, you file a report, the police file it away, nothing ever comes of it, no one ever gets charged, you don't get your stuff back, you have to hope your insurance will cover for it, all those things like that. And when it's something like this, where it is your family being stalked, but no one is actually, you know, no property is being stepped on. No one is, you know, being physically touched for the most part until the latter part. There isn't really anything the police can do. Now, obviously, we see that they can, you know, rough a guy up and things like that, which we also see in modern policing <laughs> happens far too often of if someone looks suspicious, the police will do whatever they want to them. But yeah, overall, it's just a very interesting indictment of how to protect yourself when there isn't a present danger. Yeah. And it's, it's an, I mean, there's a great line from Gregory Peck in that um, when he's about to go off, uh, actually, what was he? I think he was about to go off to like beat him up or kill him or something, but, and he doesn't end up doing it, but you know, he says, well, look, there's nothing we can do if, if you're just thinking about a crime and he goes, then thank God for that. And he's saying it from his perspective of like, I want to kill this man. So therefore, like I haven't done it, but Mm -hmm. if we're just getting tired off of our thoughts. Yeah. And I mean, and it is a flaw. I mean, I don't want to go down too far down this path, but it's like, it it is a flaw in the system, but it is at the same time. Like if we were to charge people for what they might do or what they, you know, I, I like the minority report, um, reference there because i love that movie and it that movie raises a really great point of like you know do is it is it like predetermination or are we in control of our 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 own motives and our own actions so even if you think like i'm gonna go commit this crime i I want to do this like you know this person wronged me or whatever it's like should we actually be charged for something that we haven't actually done yet um and you know and as time has moved on especially because this movie deals in sexual violence it's like sex offender registries only became a thing like in Canada was only introduced in 2004. So you think of back then um, in, in both versions, like the the 62 and the 91 version. I mean, I don't know what was going on in States, but I would assume that they would probably be more or less aligned with Canada, but it's, it's this idea of like nothing was really being done. So if you knew that this person was being released and back into your community and 
you know, we live in a system where you're a criminal, you get charged, you go into prison, you come out and you're, you've been deemed, you've served your time and that you, you accepted the consequences to your actions. So in theory, we should be welcoming them back into society. But of course, when it comes to things like sexual violence, especially sexual violence on minors, which is um, in both of the films, it becomes a little bit dicier and it's, it's that not in my neighborhood thing, right? Like, mm-hmm. um, and the fact that a sex offender registry is helpful in it and that's progress. And that's something kind of what we were talking about in terms of what if they made this movie again today, you know, things are different now. We, we kind of look at um, past convicts in a very different way, in a positive way and in a negative way. And we have more, um, we have more kind of ops in place to help hopefully help rehabilitate people and keep an eye on people and make sure that everybody is safe. And obviously nothing is foolproof, you know, that's just unfortunate um, reality, but yeah, it's like, I, I think it's, it's an interesting concept to be raised in, in the story in general of just like, what do you do when you know that somebody is out to get you and you're very confident, like, and, and they, and in both cases, well, in the same case, the same movie, um, they were correct, right? Like, like Max Katie really was out to get them. And Mm -hmm. Max Katie really was going to inflict, had the intention of inflicting danger upon um, Sam's family, his wife and his child. And he really went out to do it. Like it wasn't, you know, and so do you just get it when it's too late and that, you know, what does that do for anybody? Like, how does that serve anybody? But then the flip side of that, of course, is, I don't think any of us would want to live in a, in a country or in a society where you get charged for things that you might do, or you are very like the there's a high probability that you will commit this crime Mm -hmm. um, because that's kind of messed up in its own way. So I I just kind of show it's a, it's a very nuanced topic that um, for like a thriller kind of thing, especially I know we're shitting on the 91 version a lot for this, but it's like, (laughs) especially in the way that it's presented, you don't really think like, oh, there is actually something quite interesting and, and complex to talk about within the film because um, how do you get the Max Cady's in the world? Like, how do we how do we control them? But then they're human beings as well, right? Like, so yeah, do, do you control them, right? Like, so it's it's fascinating. It's a it's a great it's a really really great premise for um for like storytelling and for film and for discussion and. Yeah, uh, the Minority Report reference, I think, was really spot on because that's <laughs> it's exactly what Minority Report was taking. And that was taking it with like very futuristic technology that doesn't exist. Yeah. And and I think the two verifiable crimes that Max commits before the, the big climax are ones that, you know, uh, society and policing deemed as, you know, not as big crimes. You know, the, the, the idea that he... He kills a dog by, you know, uh, throwing a piece of meat with, um, I I can't remember what the poison was, um, but we don't see this happen. We just hear later on, they're like, oh yeah, the Mm -hmm. vet believes this is how the dog died. Uh, and then later, of course, when, you know, he, um, when he, when he rapes this woman, this idea of, you know, well, it's just an animal, so it doesn't really matter. And, you know, oh, this woman, she was drunk. She didn't know. She knew what she was doing, blah, blah, blah. The police aren't going to take it seriously. And all those, you know, typical excuses that we hear uh, that sexual assault survivors have to go through. It's sort of interesting that those are the two verifiable crimes that Max commits because he knows that the justice system won't do anything about it and won't stop him. Mm-hmm. And he knows that, like, you know, and Gregory Peck is telling his 
wife when Sam is telling Peggy um, in the 62 version, like, do you really want our daughter to have to go through something like that? And the yeah. way he says it is very sad to me because it's like he's saying it as if it's going to happen. Like it, mm-hmm. it, we, we're not going to be able to stop this. Cause like if Max Katie comes in, it's going to happen. And yeah. like, this is, this is going to be the result that she's going to have to go up on the stand. And it's not even necessarily of saying like, um, like you were talking about, well, oh, the character saying, oh, well, we're drunk, like we're dressed a certain way and that kind of thing. It's just, even if you are completely in, I mean, I don't want to say completely in the right. Cause it doesn't matter if you've been drinking or what you've been wearing, but it is a, a, a it is a very, unsavory ordeal to have to deal with like you don't want to have to get up on the stand and talk about something like that and especially i mean in the 62 version the kid she's 14 right so she's young and it's it's even for anybody to have to go up on stand and talk about something like that would be traumatic but for a 14 year old especially that would be even worse and you know the way that the i think in 91 and 62 I, i think i'm confident saying that like it wouldn't have been a very pleasant environment for them to have to say those things, like to have to do the witness testimonies. Mm-hmm. Um, nowadays it's a little bit better. Like you can do a, um, a pre-taped one in a private room and things like that. So not in such a public area, but yeah, I mean, back then you would have to sit there and you're and the the person who raped you is literally like how many feet away from you, Yeah, you know? And so it's, yeah, but it's it's um it's unfortunate. It made me think a bit of the last duel as well, which you know is your favorite yes. movie from last year, uh, of just this generational thing that women have to deal with um, when it comes to sexual violence and saying it hasn't really gotten better. Like that's kind of what the whole point of the last duel is saying. Like from the Middle Ages to today, we're still dealing with the same stupid nonsense. Yeah. Um, when it comes to one being assaulted, um, you know, with sexual uh, sexually assaulted, um, but two then having to 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 weigh whether or not it's even worth it to get uh, legal justice on your side. And I mean, what does that even really mean in the grand scheme yes. of things? But yeah. yeah, it's, it's, um it's, it's interesting. And it's, uh you know, it's, it's a, it's a core thing. Like that's what I was saying at the beginning of just saying like the core of this, the story, like the, the many different elements, like it, it is so fascinating. Um, and I, have you read the book? No, I haven't. I kind of want to read the book. I find it like, it's just a really, it's got really interesting elements to it that I, I think would be interesting to explore. Yeah. Did you have any other uh, similarities between the two movies you want to talk about? No, I think like those are pretty like the more spot on ones of saying, you know, the music, um, the score, which I just genuinely find very fascinating still. Like I know we already talked about it, but it still blows my mind that it's like, there's so many similarities and I really didn't like one. Um, Mm -hmm. But then, you know, the core crux of the film of being uh, just shining a light on on what is wrong with the justice system and the fact that, you know, we're talking 30 years from the 91 version and things still aren't much better, which is unfortunate. But yeah, I think the last minor thing I wanted to talk about, uh, I didn't I didn't make a note about it. But the interesting connection of of Robert Mitchum. So obviously, Robert Mitchum played Max Katie in the original one. And he has a cameo in the remake, but uh, Robert De Niro, who takes on the Max Cady role, uh, has a bunch of, of prison tattoos, including a giant one on his back uh, of the scales of justice that says uh, truth and justice, which, you know, on the surface, if you look up the dictionary, it sounds like they're the same word, but they're not because they have very different connotations in the meaning behind them. 
And interestingly enough, uh, one of Robert Mitchum's most famous roles is in the movie Night of the Hunter, where he has tattoos on his knuckles that say love and hate, which was the inspiration <laughs> for uh, Do the Right Thing when he's got the the rings that say love and hate. And it's just sort of interesting oh, where I fun. sort of feel like the back tattoo that Robert De Niro has almost feels like a direct reference to Night of the Hunter's knuckle tattoos. I could see that. That's a, that's pretty cool. It also yeah. made me think of um, Sideshow Bob's tattoos. Yes. Die, Bart, die. Bart Simpson. <laughs> die, Bart, die. But then he also has Bart's, like, I think falling on a skateboard on his back yeah. as well. Um, <laughs> very funny. All right. We're going to take a short break. And when we come back, we're going to talk about some differences. Cape Fear, the screen's most terrifying war of nerves. I've seen the worst, the dregs, but you, you are the lowest. You just put the law in my hands, and I'm going to break your heart with it. I got a little plan for your wife and kids. They're never going to forget. Never. Nancy! All right, let's look at some differences now, which despite both movies following very closely to the original novel, there were some pretty important differences. And I think, you know, the biggest one for me is the characterization of the Sam Bowdens. 1962 was the year that Gregory Peck played lawyers. He acted in what was probably his most famous role, and that is as Atticus Finch, the heroic solicitor from To Kill a Mockingbird, and then followed it up with Cape Fear, a movie he also produced. Sam Bowden is a straight man pushed to the depths of desperation, willing to extrajudicially murder a man in order to protect his family. He's an upstanding lawyer and defender of justice. Nick Nolte's interpretation has him as unfaithful to his wife, talks about the drugs he did when he was a teenager, and worst of all, he's a terrible lawyer, accused of being slippery, and actively buried evidence to ensure the conviction of his own client. So we couldn't get more different interpretations of the same character than we do here between the Nolte and the Peck versions. As I said, you literally have Atticus Finch basically playing the exact same role that he was playing in To Kill a Mockingbird there. And then you also have Nick Nolte, who really emphasizes the schemy, slimy lawyer trope that we know today. Uh, how did you find that the two different versions worked for their respective stories? I think within, like when you say within the respective stories, I actually think they work well. Um, I certainly have a preference for one over the other, but I think that within the world that Thompson builds, the world that Scorsese builds, um, they make sense, right? Like I like that in 91, it is a bit more gritty. He isn't just this, you know, dude, like, and that was something I think Scorsese did to set his film apart from the 62 in general was to create more complex characters. Like, and that's, I know you're going to get into um, the character of the daughter afterwards, but it's, you know, the, the Sam, Max, Peggy, or uh, what was the name? Peggy. Nancy. That was it. (laughs) Oh no, Peggy has this. Oh, Peggy and Lee. Sorry. Um, So, you know, the characters like Max, Sam, or not Max, the character of Sam, Lee, Danny, um, and then Peggy and Nancy, they're much more built out in, in Scorsese's version. Um, they're, they're more interesting. They're more complex. Like, whereas I find in the 62 version, Max Katie is more of the kind of the standout in terms of, of who has a more interesting backstory. Mm. Um, I think also Gregory Peck and Nick Nolte specifically, I think they're both playing to their strengths. Like, can we imagine Nick Nolte playing just like a straight 
it's like a really straight dude like it doesn't really like you want if you you hire nick nolte for a role make it a bit more interesting make it a little bit gritty make it a little bit seedy because you've got nick nolte and not to say that gregory peck couldn't do something like that um but as I said, it would have bro- broken my heart if Gregory Peck was like a slime ball or whatever, because mm-hmm. he's just he's built this reputation for himself as being, um, you know, the perfect husband, the perfect father kind of thing. Yeah. Uh, so I, I think they both work well in their individual worlds. I do. Like I said at the top, like I do think Nick Nolte's version and it's not necessarily his fault. I think it's just the way that the character is written. It's very distracting to the role because it just becomes so much like you don't have one a straight character in 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 the 91 version right like you don't have one person who's just kind of quiet and normal and that every all of the main leads are a lot they're quite a bit to deal with and i think it kind of creates this just this big ball of excess (laughs) that has it in there but yeah but i think like i mean within the individual movies though it makes sense right like maybe it wouldn't make sense in the 91 version for for sam to still be straight laced like maybe it doesn't maybe it doesn't work then as a movie like maybe it would stand out too too much it's it's almost interesting because the fact that uh nick nolte's character is such a gray person i guess we'll call it even though we don't even really see him being you know the quote-unquote good guy really because all we hear about is he he turfed his own case and he has a history of being not the the most upstanding lawyer and then that's all we know about his work his professional side and then his home life is god-awful he's always fighting with his wife you know she's accused him of having multiple affairs and things like that uh he doesn't get along with his daughter in fact he like gets very aggressive with his daughter at one point too so all this to say it kind of makes it feel like oh you know uh he was asking for this kind of torment he deserves this kind of punishment this is this is you know karmic justice coming back to haunt him sort of thing Whereas I think, I think the original one Peck and his whole family being so straight and so clean cut, it actually is more scary because it's like, look, your regular normal family, this could happen to you and there is nothing you could do to stop it. You didn't deserve it. You didn't ask for this. This was someone who, because, you know, I, I mentioned off the top, the differences between the two is Gregory Peck, uh, catches, Max Cady in the act of assaulting a woman and then testifies. So there is zero doubt that he committed this crime and then comes back as to, to enact his revenge. Whereas in the Scorsese one, he was just his lawyer. So we don't know, you know, Max Cady kind of De Niro kind of, I guess, tries to uh, claim innocence because he claims that if the evidence that was buried came to light he would have been found not guilty as he believes he rightly was. So it's a little complicated of whether or not Max Cady actually did commit the crime in the remake or not. Whereas in the original, there is zero doubt that it actually had happened sort of thing. But just so it was sort of interesting where I, I really do prefer the, this clean cut family and this really perfect lawyer who is being pushed to the depths of what a regular person would do because you know, Gregory Peck goes through all the channels, you know, he goes to the police, the police can't really do anything about it. He hires a profess, uh, uh, private investigator, the private investigator can't find any dirt about him. He eventually then, you know, sinks to his lowest depths and hires some thugs to beat him up. And that doesn't work. 
And then finally, he has to take matters into his own hand and decides that he's going to try to kill Max Katie if he comes after his family yet again. So it's just so interesting, I find, the how far can you push a man sort of scenario, whereas on the newer one, Nick Nolte, right from the get-go, is like ready for a fight. It's interesting because like in the very first scene, they like mention, he's like, oh, dad, you take boxing, don't you? Sort of setting up the final (laughs) confrontation of how he's allowed to physically fight Robert De Niro in the end. Whereas it was a little funny watching Gregory Peck, who is a very large man on his own right, but taking down Robert Mitchum, who's also a very large man. And it's like, what's this lawyer doing, you know, fighting with this like guy who's probably fought every day while he was in prison. (laughs) That's true. Did you, did you see on the IMDb, they had the quote from Robert Mitchum saying how he, in their fight, Peck actually landed a punch. Um, and and Mitchum knew it was an accident. Like he knows Peck's not, you're not doing it on purpose. It was just, you know, acting, whatever. But then he said like it, he was in so much pain for days afterwards. And he said like, I, I pity the man who tries to go up against Gregory Peck. Cause like clearly yeah. man, man can throw down. Um, I, I think it's really interesting what you're saying though, like in terms of the makeup of, of the two characters and, you know, you talk the, the an interesting point you, you brought up was like the karmic justice to, uh, to Nick Nolte, Sam. And the thing I find interesting, like with that is it's, it's karmic justice on him in terms of saying like, he was a lawyer who obviously acted inappropriately. He did something that he shouldn't have done. That's not like it is negligence as a lawyer to, to withhold evidence that could help your client for God's sakes. Um, But it's also like, it's karmic justice on him, but the karmic justice is actually harming his, wife and his daughter mm-hmm. right so it's kind of like it's it's interesting to me who scorsese and i and like and that's something i'll talk about later it's like it's interesting to me to see who scorsese decides to quote-unquote punish in this in, with violence um in this because it's not going in, in neither of these cases in, in neither of the films they're never going after sam Bowden. max isn't going after sam Bowden, uh like as a man like he's not trying to hunt like i mean they get in fights obviously but it's like he's not trying to kill sam Bowden. he's not trying to assault sam Bowden. he's trying to go after sam Bowden through his wife through his daughter mm-hmm. and that to me has always been a very interesting trope that we've seen through many many movies not just these two movies like many movies where you punish the man through the woman and the woman is the one who will end up taking the violent hit and the violent. And I mean, in this case it's, um, you know, sexual violence, which is in many ways even worse. So mm-hmm. it's like, and, and, and the, the pun, the quote unquote punishment to Sam Bowden's character is the fact that, Oh, your daughter has been, you know, sullied your, your wife. Like I've slept with your wife, you know, that kind of a thing. And I always like, that's, it's, it's a very um, kind of old and tired trope that I see in, in a lot of movies like this and it's uh but yeah i mean I, I i completely get your point on that as well yeah it's it i i feel like because they make a point of saying that max's main reason for revenge is when he went to jail uh his wife divorced him and took his child who yeah yeah, yeah. he is now grown up basically as a teenager or whatnot and i guess we're, we're supposed to believe that uh max's daughter would be the same age as sam's daughter so that's where the sort of parallels come in but they they, they try to make a very good point in not a good point but they they 
they emphasize the fact that Max lost his wife and daughter, and so he's going to make Sam lose his wife and daughter, whether or not through through death or through uh, embarrassment or pride or whatever emotion that he wants to inflict upon Sam uh, as retribution. Yeah, I, I which do you? I know this isn't the format of this uh, these episodes, but like, which do you prefer? Uh, you said you preferred the Peck one. Sorry, you did say that. You you kind of prefer the the straight laced any family. Yeah, because I, I think right? it's scarier that way. Fair, yeah. I think the Nick Nolte one is more interesting. Like, I kind of I understand where Scorsese is coming from of saying like this guy is he's a very I sorry the idea that I like specifically is that he is Max Katie's lawyer, whereas Gregory Peck's Sam is a witness who just happened to also be a lawyer. Like it just kind of like, that was a bit of a coincidence, I suppose. But yeah, I like that in the 91 version, you're talking about a man who like genuinely screwed. Like he is, he did something wrong as well. Like Nick Nolte did something wrong. Whereas Gregory Peck didn't do anything wrong. Like he was, he was a witness and he, he, he did what any good citizen should do. If you see a crime, which is you're supposed to report it and you're supposed to help out those who got hurt. But you know, in, in the 91 version, Nick Nolte is, like you said, gray. Like, he's he's a gray a gray man. There's a movie called Gray Man coming out. Um, but he's, <laughs> like, he's very gray. And, you know, and you're, you're not siding with Max Cady because Max is obviously a terrible person, terrible character. But um, the fact that Nick Nolte was, he did do something wrong that did influence Max Cady's case. I find that, like, far more interesting um, as character builds go. Yeah, I, I absolutely agree. Uh, did you have any differences you want to talk about before I get to my next one? Uh, yeah, I wanted to talk about um, something I actually just kind of touched on a little bit, which is uh, it's the depiction of violence in the two films. Like you mentioned it before in terms of the Hays Code and kind of where we are in society in terms of censorship for movies, where 1962 version, they couldn't show a lot of, I mean, whether or not they wanted to, who knows, but like, the fact is, is they weren't able to like, and, and that was a very, fairly strict line that they weren't going to be able to show a lot of violence on screen. Whereas the 91 version, there's definitely more graphic violence. Um, you know, we see uh, not a full on rape scene, um, but we, we, uh, we definitely see um, somebody getting a uh, Lori Davis. The character is like the clerk. I think it was in the, mm-hmm. uh, it's supposed to be uh, Nick, Nick Sam's law clerk. Um, we see her and get potential mistress and potential mistress. Yeah. And we like, yeah. we see her get very brutalized. Um, uh, and eventually I think they do say like she got raped, but we, you don't see that bit, but I think it's interesting the way that, you know, we, they've dealt with the violence in that sense. Uh, one, and, and, and in a way it kind of works towards the vibe and the tone of the films themselves uh, of saying like, you know, one of them is a bit more subtle and it leaves it a bit more to your imagination. And then the other one is just, it's right in your face. And then, mm-hmm. you know, kind of going along with that is the idea of they chose this potential mistress. We don't know if it is, well, they obviously got something going on, but I think they're very clear on playing. Like we haven't slept together. Like we haven't done that mm-hmm. because if you haven't slept, then obviously that's not cheating. Um, but, you know, I find it interesting that in the 62 version there is a rape that occurs and that is to the wife. Like the wife actually does get, I think they call it attacked because they're not allowed to use the word rape. 
um, but she actually does get raped. And there, then, then there was also the, um, the woman at the club beforehand who also mm-hmm. gets um, raped. But then in the 91 version, the person, the, the one rape that actually occurs is the, this potential mistress. And I, I just, I don't know, like, I'm not trying to accuse Scorsese of anything or anything like that, but I just found it interesting that in Scorsese's version, the, the wife and the daughter um, remain untouched by Max Katie. Like they do get mm-hmm. terrorized in their own way and they are abused um, by Katie to, to an extent, but he never is, it never gets to the point that he actually assaults them, um, sexually assaults them. And I, I can only imagine that that was something intentional, but I don't know if it was also intentional that the one woman who did get raped in the film is the other, the quote unquote other woman in, in their marriage. Um, so again, not accusing Scorsese of anything because I, I don't want to do that. But to me, it was just an interesting choice of who the violence was directed at when we did see that violence. Yeah, that's that's very true. And like, it's it's something that I, I don't have any sort of deep thoughts on why one was portrayed one way or another. Obviously, the the way violence was shown, you can chalk it up to what the era of filmmaking was like the the worst violence we sort of see inflicted on someone else is uh the woman that max picks up at the club after the assault happened she's got a, a you know a, a black eye and that's about mm-hmm. it sort of thing that that that's the amount of damage we see physically on another person until the very end when when max and sam are, are having a fist fight and stuff like that uh and you know they're a little uh bruised and bloody and stuff like that uh but that's that's really about the worst other than maybe when Sam hires the thugs to attack Max and he gets a bike chain um, whipped at his stomach and through his shirt, we see blood. That's about the, you know, the, the extent of, of vile, of gore in that movie. Whereas on the flip side in Scorsese, uh, we literally see uh, a woman's cheek get, you know, a chunk bitten out of like, it felt like, you know, Mike Tyson in the boxing ring, taking a bite and spitting a body part out. And I mean, to Scorsese's credit, I suppose it could have been even more graphic, like, cause in 91, like, I mean, you could have still done more. And I don't know if you, like, he really would have been stopped because we've seen many movies with, with even worse, more violent, more graphic violent scenes in it. Um, whether it's, it's sexual violence or just, um, physical violence, but yeah, it's, it's, you know, it, it, you can definitely chalk it up to the time um of the the movies were released you know if if uh thompson was able to release this movie in today in present day like in 91 or whatever even uh, maybe he would have chosen something different but i like that there is that difference because however um intentional or not i think that when you're not showing things on screen it actually makes it scarier you know kind of back to your point of saying like it could it could it could have happened to anybody, right? Like it's, it's a normal family that you're just kind of going about your business and that could happen to anyone. It's like, it's also scarier to the idea of saying like, you don't actually see what the violence is Mm -hmm. and it just lets your imagination run with, you know, the worst possible scenario of what could have happened. Um, So even if it wasn't intentional, it's like, it's, it's a very interesting, I suppose like artistic choice that ended up happening that changes the the tone of the two films quite a bit. Yeah. And in, I have a lot of problems with the Hayes codes in general, as far as mm-hmm. uh, policing morality and obscenity. And 
who thinks who should be allowed to see and do what sort of thing. I, I have serious issues with that. But on the flip side, I will totally recognize that the best filmmakers from the code era were able to circumvent this and make better films than they probably would have if they were allowed to show whatever they wanted to show. Mm-hmm. Not yeah. not to say that there there couldn't have been other great movies that, that arose through that time period, as we know from the pre-code era of, of great movies that came out then. But, you know, we're talking about people like Alfred Hitchcock who were able to so successfully get around the Hayes Code and still come across the different themes that weren't they weren't allowed to talk or, or film about and come out on top and all for the better. Yeah, it's like even something like this, like they couldn't say rape, right? They couldn't ever yeah. say rape, but it's very, very clear what they're talking about. And um, I was reading some of like the old reviews for this movie for the 62 version when it came out and people were just like, how could you possibly have like showing um, desired sexual assault on a child? Like they found that so disgusting and, and it is disgusting and it is, you know, maybe we don't need to see it in movies, but the fact is it's like, it, it was something that existed and it was something that happens. But when you have something like the Hayes code and I agree with you about it, like, you know, to censor morality and reality and things like that is a very slippery slope, which they learned from, but um, uh, it's, it's just, it's really interesting to see how they get away with, saying the things that aren't being said, right? Like it's just, you kind of read between the lines, but it's very, very obvious as well. Um, what they're talking about, especially in this movie. Now, uh, my last point I want to talk about is kind of what you're talking, you were leading off there at the very end, uh, the characterization of the teenage daughter, both feet, both films feature the Bowden family having a 15 year old daughter, Max Katie decides as part of his revenge on Sam, he sets his eyes on the young girl. In the 62 version, when Max is looking at Nancy, she is framed like Sue Lyon in the movie Lolita, but she is terrified of Max. She is chased by him into a school, and she is disgusted by his leering ways. In the 92 version, Max manages to convince Danny that her parents don't think she is mature enough and that she shouldn't be treated like a child. Max lures her into a secluded theater and flirts with her, shares a joint, and even kisses her. Even through most of the climactic moments of the movie, Danny still believes Max is innocent, or at least that he is a good person. How did the two versions of of this young woman, young girl, uh, translate for you? Oh, Juliette Lewis drove me up the wall. I was so angry. <laughs> and not not with her as, as an actress. I should say Danny, the character of Danny, drove me up the wall. You just want to shake her and just be like, you know, because I think I, I prefer the characterization of Danny over Nancy just because again I find it more interesting it's this idea of like you know sometimes teenage girls are kind of like teenagers in general are kind of stupid especially with things like this and when you have somebody who's older and 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 paying you attention like I don't think it's that out of the ordinary to to say oh like you kind of like it like even after but then the thing that bothers me was even after she figured out who he was because at the beginning she doesn't exactly know she just thinks that there's this dude right and then she kind of puts it together that this is the man that his her father's been talking about um it drives me nuts that she still kind of clings on to that like she's still even in the the climax of the movie in the boathouse like she's still defending him and that drove me nuts. I just want to shake Danny and just be like, stop it. Like, you're being an idiot. And like you said, you know, Nick Nolte, Sam gets kind of aggressive with her because she's not taking it seriously. And I'm not, I'm not condoning 
I'm not condoning any abuse on your child or anything like that. But like, I can understand why in that moment, Sam is just so frustrated and he's so at the end of his rope with his daughter because he's like, you're, you're just not understanding how serious Mm -hmm. this is. And he does what like I am saying, like I wanted to shake her. I just wanted to like, just shake her and just be like, stop it. You're being an idiot. Um, And you know, again, it's, it's, I, I think it's, far more interesting to do it the way Scorsese did because um it, like I said it's real like it is it is real whereas um in the 62 version she plays it very innocent right like she's a very very innocent mm-hmm. girl and she's just you know the kind of the her hair is always really perfectly curled and she's very cute um so you kind of go along with that and and there's no doubt again you know there's no doubt who the bad person is in the 62 version like it's always going to be max katie is the bad person whereas in the 91 version sam lee danny they all have shreds of not being great and actually contributing to the end result like you know not saying that danny is responsible for it but it's like because she falls for it because she she kind of gives into that Mm -hmm. it does it, it helps Max Katie out, right? It helps yes. out his plan. That's um, that's what his plan was, and he and she yeah. fell for it. So yeah, it's it's I I I really enjoyed it. I like the I like the way Scorsese did it in '91. I think it's it's just it's very layered and it's very um more nuanced. And I think that the character of Danny is probably the more interesting one as well. Like I thought her her storyline and the change between Sam. Um, from Nick Nolte and Gregory Peck to to the version with Danny versus Nancy, I think Danny is um, like it's a very interesting change to put into a character. And like I said, like if you do, were to do that movie again today, I think that the daughter character would again be the more interesting change that you would see, um, depending on like how what things are going on right now. Like I think that that character would be the most interesting one to look at. Yeah, I I would be very curious to sort of see what they would be able to do to update that character, especially with the use of technology and the way social media has changed teenagers' lives mm-hmm. and what they what they do, what they post, what they look at, all those sort of things. So I think that would probably have to be a central component of whatever the daughter character is if they ever remade it. But yeah, I think you're absolutely right in the sense of the the daughter is is far more of an interesting character in the Scorsese one because you know it wouldn't be the first time in the world that um you know a, a young impressionable teenage girl you know uh just develops a crush on someone who's older than them and not appropriate towards them and things like that like i i always remember like you know back in high school there would always be like one person who's like 16 or 17 dating like a guy who is like 23 24 and it's like why are you dating a high schooler dude like that's so creepy and skeezy like what are you doing and this girl thinking that you know he's the most mature and interesting man in the world because he's you know grown up and he can grow a mustache and things like that <laughs> um but it that, used to be such a thing sorry i was gonna say it used to be such a thing in like the after school specials too of like the high school kid who had the college boyfriend and you don't yeah. like now when we pull away from it a little bit there's i i mean obviously to the extent like if you're just a year older i get it like you graduated first and you know that's an it's an unfortunate kind of thing that happens in in that year but it's like when you're past the college age and you're dating high school kids, it's like, why dude? Like, yeah. what is that? It's very, yeah. It's funny looking, not funny. I shouldn't say it's funny. It's not funny, but it's just like looking at it now. Cause like, I remember in high school seeing those things and it's like the idea of the, the older guy 
was very intriguing because it was like, oh, he's like, you know, he's more mature and he knows life. And but, you know, he's yeah. like 22. What does he really know? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so, yeah, it, it, it's so it's it's tough because it is frustrating in the original. Both both the wife and the daughter have no agency over anything that they do mm-hmm. really everything is just sort of inflicted upon them whereas in in the newer one they actually have a bit of characters i would even i would even go so far as to say that the wife in the newer one still doesn't really have much to do other than you know being a bit of a a, a shrew of always <sighs> nagging and and fighting her husband who is you know cheating on her constantly and things like that she doesn't really have much to really do would would you would you sort of agree with that assessment of the jessica lang character absolutely and it's you know i I mean you can you can speculate all you want but it's just like i think it happens with female characters a lot like the wife right like it's just they're kind of meant to be that's her character the wife yeah the character's the wife like it doesn't even really matter what her name is (laughs) she's just the wife she's she's the one that is supposed to kind of um be annoying you know, like you said, she's very shrewd. She's like a shrewd. She's very um, shrilly was the, mm-hmm. the, the kind of that's the that was the word that I thought of when I was <laughs> listening to her talk. Because like when they're screaming at each other and they're yelling and it's just like the whole purpose of her character was just to be a, kind of an antagonist to her husband in that sense of like always pushing and showing, you know, she was upset. And like they even put in a um, at one point, like I think Nick Nolte saying, you know, after his previous infidelity like she was in bed just crying you know every morning and every day like you know and, and she was like oh what you thought that i was like gonna kill myself over you kind of yeah. thing like that it was kind of interesting like i think that like she kind of stood up for herself in a sense in a way like maybe that was scorsese just trying to throw something at her to do but in general i yeah i completely agree i think that um the char- like jessica lang's character is just kind of there just kind of there to be the wife and um i mean you could argue that maybe having all three of them being, I mean, I I've been saying that like all three of them are just so much that maybe there wasn't room to make Jessica Lang's character as complex or like to look at her more because it actually there, that 60 or the 91 version, it's not short either. Like it's a relatively no. longish movie. So like what more could you have really added? Like if I'm thinking of it from like more of a filmmaking perspective, it's like, could you have taken stuff out from other spots and put, given jessica lang more to do um i don't know but yeah i i i think she just is she's just the wife and jessica mm-hmm. lang's jessica lang she's quite like legendary in her own right so it's kind of a shame that she was just kind of regulated to that role in this movie yeah as woman who yells at husband <laughs> yeah in the most high-pitched shrilly way you could possibly yell at your husband yeah uh but going back to the daughter like uh i, I mentioned how it sort of has uh a bit of a Lolita feel to it. And, and mm-hmm. that movie actually came out the same year, 1962. And I, I wonder if the, the novel by Nabokov, which had been out for a while had played any sort of influence on the writing of this script, because it really sort of does feel the way that, that Max is leering at this teenage daughter. It has that sort of Lolita feel to it. It's interesting. You brought up Lolita. I just like pulled it up. Cause I know that they obviously did a remake of it later. And I was like, that would be kind of funny if they did it in the same time because the 90s and they sort of did in 97 yeah not that far off from from that one so yeah i I think the lolita characterization that that it's very apt like it's a it's another another great reference to coda another great film reference (laughs) um i try yeah it's it's 
that the, the Lolita thing I always find very gross. Like, and I think it's meant to be gross, but like, it's not, sometimes I don't feel like in those movies, I mean, now we're just talking about Lolita, like the movie, but it's like, sometimes I feel like it never, it never pushed the gross factor, the icky factor enough. And it kind mm. of just um, ended up fulfilling some kind of weird fantasies that some dudes have. Um, and I'm sure maybe some girl, I don't know, but you know, when we talk about the female character, it is the idea of grooming like that isn't, that isn't prevalent, especially in 62, but not even in 91. Like we haven't really thought about that idea that, um, you know, we, well, we, we have the idea that they're minors and that they can't make their own decisions because they're too young, but we don't really have that concept yet of, well, what happens when an older person is manipulating the younger one? So even if they consent or whatever, and that was something that, um, in 91 version, I believe the Max Katie character says like she consented, right? Like she, she said she wanted yeah. or whatever. Um, and so that, that kind of idea of it doesn't matter. Like it doesn't matter if you consented because you're too young. You can't consent at, at, um, as a minor because, you know, we, we've kind of agreed as society that your youthfulness doesn't exactly lend to the best decision making. Um, and yeah, and like I, I, I think the Lolita is like I said, it's a very apt um, reference, and it's certainly that that kind of very innocent, the innocent flower, the innocent dove, um, is much more prevalent in the '62 one. But I mean, in mm-hmm. in the '91, it's like the more active Lolita, which we see in the '97 version as well of Lolita yeah. movie. Absolutely. Do you have any other uh, differences you want to talk about? No, I think that that's good. Awesome. Well, I think that sort of wraps up our discussions on the two Cape Fears of this edition of Make Remake. Rachel, where can people find you and your work? Uh, you can go to rachelkh.com and underscore rachelkh for Twitter. Uh, do you have anything new that you've been yeah, working on? I'm trying to think. Um, I think my last two reviews for Hot Docs um, went live this week um, for Escape and for Shooting War. And you can also refer back to our Hot Docs episode where we talked about those movies. Awesome. I love that uh, yeah. great cross promotion there. Yeah, I try. I try. You can follow this show on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at ContraZoomPod. If you've seen either version of Cape Fear, let us know your thoughts. Send an email to ContraZoomPod at gmail.com. Thank you to Eric and Kevin Smale for the theme music and Stephanie Pryor for the logo design. If you'd like to listen to podcasts on YouTube, we do post all episodes there as well. Thanks for checking us out. Mm-hmm.